Hello, 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 and welcome back to the SLP Corner podcast. This week's guest is Linda from Looks Like Language. I'm so excited to have her on. I have been (laughs) trying to connect with her for so long and she's super busy. She has a full-time business she's running. She has grandchildren. And so finally I got her right before, before Christmas holidays and we are talking all about echolalia today. I first saw one of her blog posts on echolalia come up in the fall and I read it and I was just so interested in the topic and I emailed her right away because... I really wanted to have her on and talk more about this topic with her. So a little bit about Linda. She is an SLP who worked in a variety of school systems for 38 years with special education students who had a variety of different diagnoses. She's currently working to provide materials with visuals and strategies to help all learners succeed. And you can find her on her website, lookslikelanguage.com and her Teachers Pay Teachers store, looks like language. If you want to know a little bit more about her store's name, looks like language, it came about because of her strong belief that all language impaired learners benefit from visual supports. And she knows how time consuming that is, which (laughs) yes, you are correct. (laughs) So she wanted to help make materials that have visual supports and varied levels for mixed groups to help out SLPs working with special needs students. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you on. We actually talked a little bit before we started recording and you just have so much information on this topic. So I'm just so excited to kind of pick your brain. I feel so lucky that I can do this. Thank you. To start off with, if there's anyone, because I know we have a lot of like new grads and SLPs to be listening to the podcast. And so just to start off with what is echolalia like or maybe the parents wondering like what is that how would you describe what it is echolalia is when children repeat back what they've heard they can either do it right away which we call immediate echolalia and that's like within one or two responses after you've spoken to them or it can be delayed where the language pops back in anywhere from four conversational terms or days later And um, both of those are considered to be echolalia. For everybody who's listening, one of the things that echolalia shows us about our student is that they're a gestalt or a whole chunk learner. And that rather than understanding individual words, they're picking up whole chunks of information at a time and saying it back, whether they're saying it right away or if they're repeating, you know, from their favorite TV show or something they heard earlier, but they can be using those whole chunks to try to communicate something. For example, if a kid hears open the door every time mom gets ready to take them outside, they could be starting to say open the door as a request to go out because that's the context that they heard that phrase in. And immediate echolalia like that, where they say it back right away, it could have a variety of different meanings. They could, they could be trying to say back to get an interactive verbal routine going with you. They could be using it to label, like if you say take a bath and they say take a bath, they could be actually labeling the process of a bath. They could be doing it to provide you information or affirm. Like a lot of kids, if you say, do you want a cookie? They say back, do you want a cookie? And they just really are saying yes to do you want a cookie. They could be requesting it. They could walk up to you and say, do you want a cookie? 
And they really mean that they want to cook. You know, you have to watch their body language and their the way they're using it because it could also be a protest or it could be commanding you to go get me a cookie. One other interesting way is that sometimes kids use this echolalia for self-control, for self-regulation. You know, my two-year-old grandson is a, a neurotypical kid, but you know, you can tell when he's getting into trouble because you hear him saying out loud, no, don't touch. And you know right away that he knows he's not supposed to touch it, but he doesn't have the control. But you know to go um, to go get him because he's trying to control his behavior. And kids with autism can do this too. That just made me think of this person on Instagram posted a video of their child and they were doing this like contest to see if their child had self-control not to touch a cookie that was in front of her when the parent left the room and the little girl was saying patience patience saying it over and over again <laughs> and I was like oh you can tell the mom says like patience 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 and she was exactly back to control herself from grabbing the cookies exactly what it leads to is that we really have to be good investigators and looking into all the different ways each particular student could be learn using the words that they have to, you know, have those communicative functions. And they, they are limited in their language and they use these great big chunks to try to get their meanings across. So you walked us through, so the different types. So there's immediate, so it can be right away or delayed. So hours to days later. And then you walked us through some of the communicative functions. So, which is mm -hmm. interesting because I think that there's a misconception that echolalia is bad, but really it can often be a way that they're communicating. I do agree with that. And I think that especially if they have immediate echolalia, it's a little easier for us to figure out, but it really is, it's kind of like a placeholder for what they want to say. They know maybe that they're expected to say something back. They know that you're asking them something. And this immediate echolalia is kind of like us saying, hmm, or um, because it holds that place and it shows that we listened and we know a response is expected of us. So it shows that there's some um, cognitive and linguistic processing going on and kids can grow out of having immediate echolalia with help and support. Delayed echolalia, they used to think that it was just like a tape recorder or a recording, I'm showing my age, but a recording <laughs> repeating back and it didn't have any meaning to it. But, um, you know, I, I believe in trying to keep up with the research when I'm working with the student or now that I'm providing information to other SLPs and I had researched the, the blog post when I wrote it, but I wanted to go back and make sure I was completely up to date today. And I found some interesting things to, um, to share with you, but in, about delayed echolalia, one of the interesting things that I learned was that it actually can have more of a, a cognitive and linguistic background to it than what we previously thought. The kids with delayed echolalia can be trying to communicate something, even when in the past we would have just said, ah, they're just repeating something back and it has no meaning. They said, especially um, if you take a look at if they changed the language at all, um, if it could be a learned routine where they're repeating something back maybe from a TV show they heard, 
But if it's more complex than their usual speeches, um, it, it actually is showing that there are some processing going on because they can produce that more complex speech. I found two resources that are really great for everybody who's listening to check out. And they're, they're free downloads. They're going to be linked to in my blog. One of them is the American Journal of Speech-Language Pathology has an overview of echolalia that brought me even more up to date than I had been. And that article is called Examining the Echolalia Literature, Where Do SLPs Stand? And it's by Lillian and Steigler. And when I read that article, she also quoted somebody named Marge Blanc, who wrote a little a free little download called Echolalia on the Spectrum. And so some of the tips that I'm going to be sharing actually come from this most recent research. I can also put that in my description of my podcast, and I'll also link to all of Linda's blogs and website and everything so you guys can check that out. I think that's really interesting what you talked about, about what we're learning now about delayed echolalia. Anyone who's worked with a child who has delayed echolalia, it really does seem like a recording. It's as if they're not communicating to you what you've read. It seems like actually oftentimes there is a communicative intent. You also mentioned, I think before we started recording, that sometimes it can be like that scene of the movie. Can you talk more Mm -hmm. about that? Children used to learn mostly from the conversations of people around them. Nowadays, kids get exposed and uh, to, to language from TV a lot. And we know, our, we know our children with autism, they have their favorites and they just wanna watch them over and over again. And if you think about it, you know, from me coming from this really visual perspective, they're seeing these scenes go on and they're doing some kind of processing and they hear these funny lines at the same time that they're looking at this favorite movie that they see over and over again. So you really have to look into, um, you know, was there some communicative intent going on in the movie that they were watching when this funny phrase was being said? Or like your example of the mom saying, patience, patience, patience. You know, if they heard that, then maybe a kid might be going, patience, 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 and he's just telling himself to wait. If we don't bring the parents in and find out some of the background information, we can just shrug it off as, oh, it's just delayed echolalia and they're not trying to communicate with us, where the latest research is showing that more than we ever thought they really can be. I would definitely read the two articles to get a a better view of what that is, but they're really starting to show the latest numbers that they're showing. There's a lot less non-communicative verbal speech going on than anyone back in the 90s would have thought or early 2000s. I think that's so interesting. And I feel like any therapist or parent hearing this, that is very hopeful. And it's a comforting feeling to know that your child or a child you're working with is trying to communicate with you. There is intent behind their messages. So I think that's really interesting. And what I really, I really liked about these, um, these two articles that I think it's worth your time to go look. If you do nothing else, the one by March Blanc is really straightforward and easy to take advice from. If you go and look at the, the journal article where the um, literature is being reviewed, if you don't do anything else, go to the very end of it because after the review of the literature, 
they put out a whole bunch of steps that are really commonplace practical tips for you to think about when you're dealing uh, with your students. So I would, I would go back and, and read at least the end of that article if you have any students with echolalia. Because one of the things I learned reading that today is that you can work with students to apply these phrases that they use to the actual situations and take some of their um, phrases that they use for communicative uh, intent and start combining pieces of them to start help them generating new utterances. I found that really fascinating. That's really interesting. So can you give an example of that, like what that would look like? Let me quote from the article. I haven't actually used this in therapy because I, I stopped doing direct therapy, but I really think it sounds great. Um, this comes from Marge Blanc and she has a book out, which I may buy now to, just to read up one. And she talks about the six stages of natural language acquisition. And kids start with communicative use of whole language gestalts. And they gave the example of let's get out of here and want some more. And then they talk about breaking it into chunks. So let's teach them some phrases with let's get and out of here and phrases with want and some more and then recombine them and say like, let's get some more or want out of here so that you're taking those, those chunks that they have and then start working down toward single words and then recombining the words. So that it's basically, if you're starting with the chunks that they already have, break them down, give them lots of ways to use it and then start taking those pieces that now they understand more as two word phrases or one word phrases, you start then teaching them to combine the single words. And I didn't have this literature at hand. You know, the student that I talked about in my blog post, my goodness, I, I don't even want to say how long ago it was that I was working with him, but I was just using every tool and every belief that I had at that point in time to try to help this kid communicate because I really felt like he was communicating and he loved stories. All right. So the, my practical tips for how to deal with kids on the spectrum really came out of my experiences without having this research knowledge at that point in time, but I, I stand by them even now. So we always start with a kid who has autism by making sure that they have joint attention. And joint attention means you're just paying attention. You're both paying attention to the same thing. Um, this is something you go through with little kids, any little kids too. You start with talking about um, where they're looking and what they're paying attention to. And we do that naturally with babies because we're talking about their body parts. When we change them, they get a little older, they're looking at something. You talk about the ball that they're looking at. Um, kids who have autism just need some extra help. So you start with where the child is attending and you gradually teach them to start attending where you are too. For example, like, you know, a finger point. My cat knows that if I point at his bowl, I'm thinking about feeding him, but sometimes kids who have autism don't realize the meaning of that gesture or to look where your eyes are looking. And we really have to work with them to get that joint attention going. Um, it's really important to let the kids initiate first and talk about where they're uh, where their attention is, because that's what they're interested in knowing about and talking about. 
Um, involve parents. It is always a good idea to involve parents to the degree that they want to and um, can be involved in therapy. Um, but especially now with learning about kids in delayed echolalia, I mean, how are we going to know what the meanings of these phrases are unless we can get the parents to tell us a story about, you know, well, what do you think it means? How, what, what happens when your child says this? Or what's going on, you know, in his favorite TV show when this happens to help us understand possibly what could be uh, being communicated? And like you said before, I'm really sure the parents would be very happy to know that it isn't complete nonsense, but they can try to figure out some meanings to help them communicate with their children um, from these utterances. Um, when you're working with children who have autism, be really literal in your language. Don't use any kinds of figurative language. Don't use harder words than you need to. Make sure that the language you're modeling really connects to what the kid is looking at, what the kid is doing, so that they start learning to connect to those whole chunks with that situation. Most recent research also says to use less direct language because it's more likely to produce echolalia. So try to avoid questioning, try to get more into natural communicative interactions with kids and talk about what's going on and having like a little conversation rather than asking questions. Just bite your tongue and do it, we can. <laughs> so, um, and my piece of it, this is not from the research, but this is from my clinical experience, is that you just can't go wrong using visuals. Even when you're modeling and talking about what's going on as it's happening, to me, that's not enough. To me, after you do your activity, if you plan an activity with rolling a ball, have fun, model the language, but then take a break, step back, have some really simple pictures, have a really easy book, have the picture of two people rolling the ball and use symbols, or if your kid actually can read words, but still is echolalic, you could use words. But I'm a real big um, believer in using something like Smarty Symbols and having all the words there and starting to use the sentence, pointing at each of the words as you're saying them, because that gives, a visual gives a much longer time period for kids to look at and process. Words are really fast. Words run together. You know, if you try learning another language, it just at first sounds like one big blur of run together words. You don't, you don't know what those individual words. And I think the kids with autism who were just learners, they just hear that whole big long phrase and it doesn't make any sense except for that it was said in this context. And as you're trying to move them from those big phrases, visuals help, especially if you're pointing and saying as you point and you have a slower rate, it gives them more time to learn to connect the words, the verbal words and the pictured words. That was like an aha moment for me, the way you just explained that words are so fast and visuals are so much longer. A word comes and goes, you hear it and it's gone. But a visual, it's there, you can look, you can point to it, they can look at it, digest it, go at their own pace. That makes so much sense to me. I haven't heard someone explain it in that way before. 
Oh, well, I'm excited to be the one to do it for you then, because I really, like my this is why I got so much into to visuals, because even my kids without autism who had auditory processing problems, I would end up writing everything out to help them connect it. And I just found visuals make a huge, huge difference for working with kids with language impairments. The other thing that I found out working along, if you sit down and read a kid's book with a kid in your family, as you're reading these sentences and they are often not connected to the pictures in the book. Kids have to do a lot of linguistic and cognitive and making inferences to actually connect that language to what's going on in the book. So I started with first trying to like put my own words with pictures over them. And then finally I gave up and started making my own books. They weren't, they weren't adapted at that point, but I was I was always saving magazines and old books that the kids used at school so that I could cut out the pictures. And if I had, you know, an activity where I was using bubbles, I would make sure I had a picture of the bubbles. Parents thought that I was a really good artist, but I got very fast at tracing pictures from kids coloring books so that I had a picture to go along with the words so that then the kids could go home and show the parents and, you know, read the pictures to interact with their parents about what they did that day. And that's a, that's a good thing for preschoolers in general, because they can only talk about what it is that's going on at the moment. And, you know, kids come home from school and parents say, what did you do? And kids say nothing. But if you provide them a picture and some picture words to talk about it in your little speech communication book, then they can go home, the parent can open it up and they can see what the kid did that way. And then you're, you're fostering communication at home. So I always felt that that was worth my extra time to do that. Mm -hmm. And then after you do the visuals, go back and do the activity again, model it again, bring the visuals back out and see what the kid can tell you after that second round where they've had the experience, the words with pictures, the experience again, and see what kind of language do they have at the end of the session that they didn't have before. And then you feel like you've accomplished something. It's a good feeling. <laughs> I like how you you said like the books weren't weren't what you wanted exactly. So you just made your own books. <laughs> I did. I did. I made, I made my own words for the books at first. And then I said, oh, I'm just going to make my own books because that way I can match it exactly with one little piece of what I did that day. But you know what? If a child can go home and open the book and show their parents what they did and talk about one piece of it, it's okay. It's great to have kids come home and start being able to communicate to their parents. Yeah, it's so true. And I actually was just talking to a parent about this and they were saying how their kids, like all kids, this was a kid with autism, but honestly, I think it's like all kids. When you say like, how was your day? What did you do? It's so hard to get information out of them. So it'd be so helpful if they could have something like that and bring that home. And it's so much easier to be able to think, okay, like I did this, I did this, and it helps them produce that language and have that nice, like richer conversation. It certainly, it certainly does work. And since you're kind of planning out for the week anyway, just find yourself one extra picture to be able to send home. You know, cut out, cut out one picture off of a worksheet that you used, if you used one. Yeah. And it makes a big difference for kids to be able to communicate at home. Mm -hmm. Even one picture, and they can talk about that one activity better than coming home and not sharing anything that they did the entire day. Or 
getting the typical answer that SLPs get, which is we played. <laughs> the kids go home and they say, oh, we played, which does not really show the, the expertise that we have or how hard we were working during a session to get a skill. And when yeah. you make it fun, kids love it. They do think they're just playing and they do learn faster and hold on to it better. But sometimes it's nice to let parents know that we actually have been working on something. <laughs> okay, so you walked us through so many practical tips. Thank you so much for going through all that. So I have a, cl a client on my caseload who is having that delayed echolalia. It's happening all the time at home. It doesn't show up in clinic but it shows up at home and it shows up at times that are kind of unexpected. So he shares a room with his sister and he wakes up in the middle of the night. It's almost like a recording. It seems like that from a video and he will say it all the time. The parents are like, what do we do? They've tried so many different things with their, but he's a new client. So I'm just learning about this all now. So it's fresh on my mind, but they've tried a bunch from their behavior team and nothing can seem to like work with him on this. He'll just wake up in the middle of the night and start saying that blurb from the video, or he'll just say it at times that seem to be random times throughout the day. And it's become more severe over time. Like it's happening at a higher frequency. Have you ever had a case like this where it's like, it's delayed, but it's coming up like in the middle of the night or like at random times throughout the day when no one's even there or no one's awake seems to be really on his mind at the forefront. Do you have any thoughts on that? Given what I've been reading, I think that I would start with trying to get hold of the video and watch what it is that's going on where that phrase is said and figure out on your own what the communicative intent was of the character that was saying it at that point in time. And then go back after you've thought about that one and talk to the parents and the team more in terms of trying to figure it out more from an ABA kind of standpoint, behaviorist look at, you know, what happened before? What did the child do? What were the, the consequences? Um, so, you know, sometimes behaviors and communication get built up by like an accidental sequence of events because if a child says something and a parent tries everything that they can do to figure out what it is that their child wants or needs, and then they're at their wits end, you know, they, they try everything. So one of the things that you look at is, does anything, did anything stop the child from repeating it in any of the occurrences that happened before? Because if the child is really asking for something and as you're going through the whole repertoire of things that your, your kid could possibly need, then, um, and you just hit on whatever it is and the kid's happy and there was communicative intent then the child would stop saying whatever it was. And if you don't know enough at that point in time to pay attention and realize what it was, that happened or don't even know that you need to pay attention to what happens afterwards, then, you know, the child could become frustrated because, you know, he said it once and he got what he wanted and now he's saying it, nothing's happening. So he's trying harder and harder to get that whatever it was and it's not working. Does that make sense to that you? Makes so much sense. And it's so, I'm like having a light bulb moment again, because the mom had mentioned, since I literally just had the one session with them, the mom mentioned one of the things their behavior consultants tried to do was 
and it didn't work, which now makes sense that it didn't work, is that they would just interrupt the child during the middle of his string of speech. And they would be, they would give him two instructions, like touch your nose and touch the door to try to like break it. But it makes sense now that that didn't really work because if the research is telling us there's communicative intent and it may have been reinforced before, maybe by accident or in some capacity it was reinforced, that's not going to stop it because he has something he's trying to share with us in some capacity. So that makes yes. so much sense that that wouldn't have worked. That's also how problem behaviors can pop up. Because when a child gets frustrated, they don't have words. What do they do? They act out. And it's very upsetting to everybody involved. And when you naturally start going through, well, what is it that he wants? What can I do? Sometimes nonverbal children connect that behavior with the way you communicate to ask for whatever it was they wanted. And that's how some behavior problems can come into place. So that article that I mentioned earlier, you really should go back and read yourself because you're going to understand it a whole lot better when you read it. And one of the things also that was in that, that article, I had always read before and I had worked in an ABA program for a while. And one of the things that was inconclusive was whether you try to do extinguishing these behaviors and view them as inappropriate behaviors, which was what the behavioral consultant did when they said, touch your, touch your nose, touch your ears, because it's breaking up that cycle, getting them to comply with demands, and then starting to try to reroute them into something more appropriate. And that's kind of like the ABA thinking behind it. But they actually quoted that, that um, trying to extinguish echolalia and perseverative communicative behaviors by doing these things has been shown that sometimes it is effective during the research trials, but there's never any carryover and it doesn't stop it from happening anywhere else. Um, so that you could take a look at that, especially for this case. I think you're gonna learn a lot from reading this article. The other person that I've read when you're starting to deal with behaviors that happen, and if you think of repeating and repeating as a as a behavior, there's a guy named Mark Durant, D-U-R-A-N-T, who's a um, psychologist, and he worked with um, a lot of severely impaired nonverbal autistic individuals and would come in and take a look at what, what commun communicative function is the behavior serving, and let's teach them a more appropriate way to ask and have their need met. And that could be what's going on with your student. They have a need, they're trying to express it, but it's it's not clear. So that's that's where I'd start with trying to investigate it. Okay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I learned so much from you. I guarantee everyone listening has learned so much from you. And you provided us with so many resources, so much research. Thank you so much for coming on. You're very welcome. And I'm nervous as anything to come on, but once you get me talking, it's like, oh, this is really interesting to talk about. <laughs> this is why I love podcasting because it's just so nice to be able to have these conversations with people. It's so interesting. You covered so much. I mean, you talked about what it is, the different types, the communicative intent. I think that's so important since oftentimes it's perceived as very, very negative. 
practical tips for treating it. If anyone wants to follow you, find your blog, can you just leave everyone with some information on where they can find you? And I'll make sure to link it all in the description of the podcast as well. My business name is Looks Like Language because I believe in visuals and everything that I have, my store, my blog, my Instagram, I have Facebook, but I don't like Facebook. But anyway, if you want to find me, just Google looks like language. And I'm always happy to have new people coming by. And I'm really happy to have questions asked because that's when I really say, hmm, what would I be doing if I were this kid's clinician? And I'm just thrilled to be able to bounce ideas off with people and help them brainstorm things that they could try to investigate and move along the path. And if you decide to join my blog, I send out a monthly email and I have a freebie section with materials that I don't offer at my store. It's only for people who follow me. So feel free to take advantage of that too. Okay, perfect. So everyone go follow Linda, go check out her blog, her TPT page. I'll link it all in my description of my bio. So it's super easy to find her. Thank you so much for coming on today. Very glad to join you. Have a good one. Thanks. I'll see everyone next Monday. 